Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. But wait, there's more. You can now contribute through Venmo and Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you are listening to episode number 415 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3 Rescue Mission Part 2. Previously on the Space Rocket History Podcast. Another problem discovered during the first week in space threatened the success of the mission. A thruster engine in the command module was leaking fuel. This was the second thruster to develop a problem, and both thrusters had to be turned off. Without the thrusters, the astronaut's safe return to Earth was in jeopardy. At Kennedy Space Center, a rescue mode of assembly and launch operations was put into effect. An Apollo spacecraft, which could be used as a rescue vehicle, was checked out on an accelerated 24-hour, seven-day-per-week schedule. Skylab was the first manned spaceflight program to have a rescue capability. It called for two astronauts to fly a five-seat spacecraft into Earth orbit, rescue the stranded crew, and return to Earth. The launch vehicle for the rescue operation, a two-stage Saturn 1B rocket, was erected and checked out under a similar accelerated schedule. Within three weeks after the rescue mode was initiated, the rescue vehicle was moved to Pad B of Complex 39 and launch pad preparations were begun. While the rescue spaceship was being prepared, NASA and contractor personnel in several areas of the United States ran tests to determine whether the Skylab astronauts could return safely to Earth in the malfunctioning command module. Astronaut candidates Vance Brand and Don Lind, who had worked so hard to prepare to fly a rescue mission for Skylab 3, were now given a new task. NASA wanted to know if the second Skylab crew could safely fly home in their command and service module with only two working quad pack thrusters. Fully aware that they were now tasked to find a way to cancel their rescue mission. Brand and Lind worked with a team analyzing how well a command and service module could maneuver without the two thrusters that had failed. If they were successful, 
they would lose their chance to fly in space until another opportunity arose. Of course, NASA was duty-bound to explore this possibility for at least two reasons. One, to save cost, and two, to eliminate the risk factor of sending another crew into space. The cost was a major factor because the United States economy was sliding into a recession. The Vietnam War was a major expense, and the social programs brought in by President Johnson were also quite costly. Plus, the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates to combat inflation. And finally, because NASA's focus was turning more and more toward the space shuttle. In fact, the economy did fall into recession shortly after the Arab oil embargo in October 1973. Now, with that little bit of background for the latter half of 1973, we will continue on. Vance Brand remembered how he got the news that NASA was now going to pursue eliminating the rescue mission. Quote, Near the end of our preparation period, management said, Well, we believe we can do this. Now let's set about to see how we can get them down without expending the resources for a rescue mission. So, just overnight, we changed goals. We got the simulator adapted to the changed situation, and I spent a lot of time in that simulator on that. I must say, in all of my work on the ground in the space program, that was probably the most interesting time that I can remember. That whole exercise was very satisfying. However, The short deadline nature of the work definitely could be a challenge to proper coordination. I found out one piece of information that I thought was critical just when I was walking down the hall at work. I happened to speak to the Draper representative and he said, Oh, by the way, you know that when the crew up there gets ready to deorbit and they have to use plus X, if you don't hold full left on the translation hand controller, that might surprise them. They might go out of control and mess up the flight. So, it was built into the procedure. I mentioned that at some point to Alan Bean and got information up to him, and I thought, gosh, Why didn't we know that? Maybe it was before we had an opportunity to simulate that, because I'm sure we would have found it out in simulation. End quote. Even though a significant amount of fuel was lost due to leaks, running out of fuel was still not a concern. Remember that the command and service module were designed for going to the moon. So flights in low Earth orbit only used a small portion of the service module's capacity. On a moon mission, the powerful primary service propulsion engine, also known as the main engine, 
had to be capable of making the trans-Earth injection burn that moved the spacecraft out of lunar orbit and back towards home. So, it had to stock plenty of fuel to make that burn. So, even though the service module's reaction control system lost a lot of its fuel, the main engine had plenty to spare. In the end, the team developed two re-entry procedures. The first procedure went under the assumption that the two remaining good service module quad thruster packs would be usable. The procedure involved flying the spacecraft similarly to what was done during the rendezvous and docking, except this time compensating for the two missing quads. The second procedure was really unusual. This method would not have used the main engine of the service module at all. Instead, the entire re-entry would have been performed using only the reaction control system thrusters on the command module, not the quads on the service module. Believe it or not, those reaction control system thrusters on the command module could generate enough thrust for the retro burn that would slow the spacecraft down and bring it out of orbit. But it was just barely enough thrust. As Brand said, quote, We had a procedure to do it. These thrusters were only designed to give you attitude control, so you had to figure out a way to beat the system to get translation out of it. I think it involved having two command module hand controllers going in opposite directions at the same time to actually get translation. End quote. I'm sure you realize when I say translation, that refers to change of location from one point to another, as opposed to rotation or changing attitude. In general, the motion of an object involves both translation and rotation. So, the command module would have just barely enough fuel for re-entry. Brand continues, quote, I don't think there was much room to waste any, but there would have been enough left after that to control the attitude of the spacecraft during re-entry. Somewhere, I still have those written procedures, copies of them, and they were rather bizarre, end quote. Flight Director Phil Schaefer had this to say, quote, The solution to the attitude control problem turned out to be putting the center of gravity of the command service module in the right place. When you translated fore and aft, it would rotate the spacecraft around where the real center of gravity was. Once we figured out we had enough stuff on board to place the center of gravity where we wanted it, then it became just a procedure, which Vance did a wonderful job of working out in the simulator. 
Brandon Lynn had to put in a good bit of time figuring out how much burn it was going to take to get the desired reaction. So it really worked. Vance was the hero of the rescue team. Later, Alan Bean told us that the heads up on the translation hand controller duty cycle requirements had been extremely helpful. End quote. Since I brought up Al Bean, I do want to quickly mention that while all the work was still progressing on the ground, the crew in space became concerned as to when exactly they would see the crippled spacecraft procedures for re-entry. Vance Brand recalled, quote, Al Bean was understandably impatient. It was... When are you going to get those up here? And just as in the case of Apollo 13, the people who were simulating these procedures were just wanting to be 99.9% sure that everything was okay. So, we put Alan off a little bit. End quote. Since the day that the procedures were completed, Lind has always believed that as a backup crew, he and Bran were very committed. But as a rescue crew, they were not very smart. It was decided later the same day that the rescue mission would be canceled and its crew, Brand and Lind, stood down. The Skylab 3 crew could then return at the end of a nominal mission using the procedures devised by their backup crew, Brandon Lynn, in the simulators. Using an Apollo spacecraft simulator, technicians tested alternate methods of maneuvering the command module. They concluded that the three Skylab astronauts could safely fly their present spacecraft back to Earth. However, the rescue vehicle was maintained in a launch-ready mode in case any other serious problems developed aboard the orbiting space station. The subsequent investigation of the leaks in the service module indicated that loose fittings in the oxidizer lines had somehow gone undetected in two years of ground testing. Later that day, the crew was informed that the mission would continue as normal but that the rescue vehicle would be available for rescue if required for them. Meanwhile, Brand and Lynn continued their backup crew training with Lenore for Skylab 4, and Brand and Lynn stood prepared for a two-man rescue launch for Skylab 3 and Skylab 4 if necessary. Spoiler alert, it never was. Before I move along to the next topic, I wanted to say something about the unflown astronauts' experience during this whole crisis. I hope you'll find it interesting. For Don Lynn, the rescue crew task of determining how to retrieve the second Skylab crew and the backup crew assignment of figuring out if the crippled spacecraft could make it safely back to Earth were both very challenging and very different experiences. To Lind, 
Bringing back the crippled spacecraft was a purely technical question, which was, is the spacecraft still capable enough to control the command module during re-entry in all the normal modes and all the reasonable failure modes? It boiled down to just a mechanical question. Can this vehicle survive under any reasonable circumstances in its current condition? On the other hand, the issues involved in the rescue flight mission were more obscure. Of course, there were the technical questions of configuring and operating the rescue spacecraft, which were pretty straightforward. But there were other logistical concerns not involved in the backup crew work that weren't. One of the most important of those questions that Lynn was directly involved in was deciding what exactly, in addition to the crew, would be brought back. In fact, Lynn was to be the cargo master who would decide, based on his scientific knowledge and piloting skills, what would be brought back. There would be no advice from the ground and no input from Albine's crew. Lind alone would decide which scientific data would be returned. Lind explained, quote, When you get five guys in that command module, it's rather intimate. To start with, even before the process of loading scientific cargo begins. End quote. For both Brand and Lind, the task of determining if the crippled spacecraft could return to Earth was accompanied by very mixed emotions. These astronaut candidates had been waiting for years for a flight, and they had finally been assigned this rescue mission. Now they had completed the training and simulations and proved that the mission could be accomplished and that they were fully ready to fly it. But now they were told to find a way they could cancel their coveted rescue mission if they succeeded in proving that the disabled command and service module docked at Skylab could bring its crew home safely then they would also prove that there was no need for their rescue mission. Brand said, quote, It was kind of a two-edged sword. In a way, we had so focused on the rescue mission that it was a little disappointing that we wouldn't get to do it. But on the other hand, we understood completely and we were set about working as hard as we could in traditional backup crew mode to help do the flight plan and procedures and everything so we could get them down on their own. The disappointment of losing the flight was tempered by the knowledge that NASA was making the right decision by not flying the rescue mission, but it was still a bitter, sweet experience. We would jump at any chance to fly. You know, being an astronaut is a lot like being on a roller coaster. You have these high highs and then low lows. Disappointing events coinciding with the low lows 
and maybe getting assigned to something and just being top of the world. And so it cycles, end quote. Lynn recalled, quote, It's hard to describe our feelings. We were the backup crew, and we needed to work out the procedures with the quads so that they could safely come home. You're really dedicated. You feel not just a professional obligation, but also a personal obligation to the fellows on the crew that you know so well to do that job very well. So we did the very best job we could and were able to convince management that we had enough redundancy to safely bring the guys home with the quad problems. But we were also the rescue crew, and if we hadn't been so efficient as the backup crew, we would have flown on a mission. After the whole thing's done, you say, You know, we're good guys, but boy, are we stupid guys. When you're in that kind of situation, and many of us in the space program had been in the military, so things really count, you simply knuckle down and work very efficiently. Sure, I had to get home and see my family occasionally, and yeah, you require sleep and that sort of thing. Your main emphasis is, we're going to get this job done in a very limited time. We've got to work very efficiently. You obviously don't take a day off to go play golf. That's just not in the priorities. You have to relax a little bit, but you have to get the job done. So, if you have to get up early in the morning to get in the simulator, you get up early in the morning and get in the simulator. You never really hope that anybody has any problems. You just don't allow yourself those thoughts. But it was a long time before I flew. I was there for 19 years before I flew. I had been in a group that was being trained to go to the moon, and I thoroughly expected to be the second scientist on the moon. Jack Smith was obviously going to fly the first because he had the whole geological community behind him. But I was obviously going to be the second one. And by darn, they lowered the budget and canceled the last three Apollo flights, and only 12 guys walked on the moon. So big disappointment. Then it happened again in Skylab because Vance and I had been the rescue crew. And Vance and I and Lenore had been the backup crew on the last two missions. It was completely obvious to everybody that when they flew the second Skylab workshop, which was already built and paid for, that we were going to be the prime crew. Of course, then they lowered the budget and they cut the second Skylab in half with a welding torch. And now it is in the Smithsonian Museum as the most expensive museum display in the world. Those things are professionally frustrating. But hey, that's part of life. After a while, you quit whimpering and press on.
end quote. Despite working themselves out of a trip to space on the Skylab rescue mission, both Brand and Lynn would eventually make their way into space. For Brand, the wait was pretty brief compared to the other astronauts that had not flown in space at the time. Vance flew along with Tom Stafford and Deke Slayton on the Apollo-Soyuz test project, which, as we all know, was the first joint U.S.-Soviet space mission. On that mission, the old veteran Tom Stafford was the flight's commander. He had most recently flown on the 1969 Apollo 10 mission that had tested the lunar module in orbit around the moon. Deke Slayton was both the Astronaut Corps' senior member and an unflown space rookie. I'm sure you recall Slayton was selected as one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts but was eventually disqualified from flight status due to a heart condition. The Apollo-Soyuz test project crew launched on the final flight of the Saturn rocket and the Apollo command module. It docked with a Soviet Soyuz crew in orbit. As a side note, in 1969, Hollywood made a science fiction film called Marooned. I don't know if you've seen it. It starred Gregory Peck, Richard Crenna, and Gene Hackman. The story of Marooned, with its depiction of an international cooperation rescue mission, has been cited as a factor that partially inspired the Apollo-Soyuz test project mission. Okay, back to the topic. Vance Brand was once asked which mission he would have preferred to fly, the Skylab rescue mission or Apollo-Soyuz. He said, quote, For the sake of the second Skylab crew, I guess I would have picked Apollo-Soyuz. But if needed, I would have been very enthusiastic about a rescue mission. It would be something that the rest of your life would really stand out. End quote. On the other hand, Lind would not fly for 12 years after the potential Skylab rescue mission. That was a total of 19 years after he joined the astronaut corps. Though originally brought into corps as a pilot astronaut, Lind who had worked as a NASA space physicist prior to his selection, flew as the lead mission specialist on Space Shuttle Challenger in 1985. The mission was bringing the second Space Lab flight into space. Lynn said, quote, Looking back, the wait was well worth it. Because the 19 years was not just standing in line waiting. For example, I had a position in the Apollo program that was very, very satisfying. End quote. Lynn recalled that he was involved in the development of the Lunar Laser Ranging Experiment, which involved reflecting lasers off mirrors placed on the lunar surface by the Apollo astronauts to make precise distance measurements between the Earth and the Moon. 
Lynn said that his contributions helped make the ranging mirrors the only Apollo experiment still used. Lynn said, quote, There were some very interesting, satisfying experiences going on. Even when I spent six and a half years training for two missions that didn't even fly. End quote. Okay, with the service module crises and rescue mission covered, let's return to the Skylab crew where we left them on mission day six. Shortly after retiring for the night on mission day six, the crew was awoken on mission day seven early to work out another master alarm in the command module. It was caused by a major short in the Apollo telescope mount system, which spread its way through other systems and produced ominous readings at mission control. This was the latest in a series of systems faults early in the mission, but they were unrelated to the command and service module leaks. Nevertheless, they led to increased tension on the ground and in orbit. On the other hand, the crew was still optimistic. On mission day eight, Garriott wrote in his diary that everyone was feeling perfectly fine, fully adapted and enjoying zero-g. Appetites were improving, but they were not up to normal, and body mass had been stable for several days. So, with their vestibular problems basically over, the crew was finally enjoying the experience of microgravity. They were also working hard to get back on schedule because of the slower work pace during their days of space adaptation sickness. Now, they could handle all the tasks that were possible. They could do the medical experiments and the Earth Resources protocols. As the mission entered the second week, the crew stepped up the medical protocol somewhat slighted up to now because of more pressing needs. We also have a way to measure our heart rate. And this reads out our heart rate beats per minute as we're pedaling. Of course, the harder you pedal, the harder your heart has to work, and the better it is for your cardiovascular heart system. While we're pedaling this bicycle during the medical experiment, our breath is analyzed in this metabolic analyzer so that our uh, pulmonary system can be thoroughly evaluated during the period that we're up here. This is used in combination primarily with the lower body negative pressure experiment. The man slides in from the top here. He slides into his waist. Then we pump him down to a semi-vacuum. That draws his blood from his head down into his legs. That's a good measure of how well his cardiovascular system is performing over long term in space flight. Of course, that's one of the reasons we're here. The purpose of the rotating chair is to determine the response of the vestibular system to zero gravity. And we've been doing many experiments on this to see how the balance mechanism in the inner ear is affected by weightlessness. Food log. ADR, four salt packs and one strawberry drink. 
Other medical data was compiled from an accurate reporting of the daily food and fluid intake. Body waste and food residue were weighed daily. And the wastes were either dried or frozen for return to Earth for analysis. The weight of each crewman was also checked daily, not by conventional scales, but by a device that electronically counts time of oscillations of the subject to determine mass. And blood samples were taken. The samples were frozen and later returned for post-flight analysis. But there was one thing the Skylab crew could not do, and that was most of the solar physics task. This was because most of the cameras required film that could only be replaced by an EVA. They had to go outside of the workshop to load the film. Under normal circumstances, this film loading would have been completed much earlier in the mission, but due to the crew's illness, the EVA had been postponed to mission day 10. Garriott recalled, quote, On mission day 9, we accomplished two of the Earth resources operations, which was kind of a big deal because it required a major change of Skylab's attitude in space. The whole station was reoriented, with use of the large control moment gyros and pointed toward the Earth instead of the Sun. We worked these experiments early since we still had no film in the solar cameras. End quote. The Earth Resources Package was enabled. Its six remote sensing systems put into full operation. Well, I guess we're crossing the northern border of the U.S. right about now. Uh, over Montana. The border over Montana coming down through North Dakota and then Minnesota. One of our major objectives in Skylab is to look at Earth and its resources. We want to look at its forestry and its agriculture, its freshwater resources, its weather, its... Uh, pollution, and a number of, of other resources that are uh, very important to us on the Earth. This is called our Earth Resources Experiment Package. It consists of uh, about uh, six experiments with which we uh, look at the Earth, and we spend a lot of time taking data here. This particular instrument is a telescope, and we can uh, see a uh, resolution down to a quarter of a mile square. For example, we can see a city block with this telescope. Just take a shot off the coast of Chicago there. We have another battery of uh, experiments also that are associated with Earth resources, and uh, they are these cameras that take actual photographs and different wavelengths of light. And then uh, these photographs then are returned to ground and uh, processed and evaluated. And the purpose, of course, is to learn how to use our resources on Earth more efficiently and more effectively. Handheld cameras were also unstowed. Their lenses aimed at Earth through the wardroom window. Okay, and we got that storm uh, story. It's got a nice spiral effect, and uh, it just doesn't look very strong yet. 
So, after nine days, life on board Skylab had finally gotten on track with a good routine established. And tomorrow, the crew would conduct their first EVA. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 415 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3 Rescue Mission Part 2. Our next episode should be released on or about June 15th, 2023. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box. There's a text box on the right-hand side there. Just scroll down till you see it and type in your email and you can subscribe. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 235 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. This podcast should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at SpaceRocketHist. And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash spacerockethistory. I had a few afterthoughts for this episode, of course. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. Now, I know it would have been wasteful to fly that rescue mission. It would have been expensive. It would have been a little risky. It would have been compared to one of the Soviet Union's space stunts conducted in the 1960s. Perhaps. But, wouldn't it have been cool? They could have had two Apollo spacecraft docked at Skylab at the same time. They could have had two crews, five people, on Skylab simultaneously. I don't know where they would have slept. I guess they would have slept out in the uh, command module, the two new guys, Brand and Lind. There would have been five astronauts that had to be stuffed into a command module to return home. <laughs> now, that wouldn't have been cool for them, I know, but uh, that would have been pretty amazing. Skylab was designed with the possibility of accommodating a rescue mission, and they would have taken advantage of that. I wonder if it could have been sold as, we're just testing this out to see if a rescue mission will work. Hmm. I doubt it. <laughs> it but it would, have, it would have been nice. Maybe it, it would have been kind of like uh, the Apollo 13 situation. NASA would have gotten some great media coverage out of that. Most people 
now don't even know the rescue mission ever existed. A lot of people back then that lived through it didn't know it existed either. I, I tested uh, ChatGPT. That's that AI thing. It's in a beta right now. But I tested that, and I wanted to know if it knew about the rescue mission. It did not. It told me that uh, none of the Skylab missions required rescue, which is technically true, but it had no information that there ever was an aborted rescue mission. However, to its credit, Wikipedia had a brief article on the mission and the vehicle. So we had enough Saturn 1Bs, but now we got our leftovers and they're all just museum pieces. But I do realize NASA made the right decision. It's just not the one I wanted. It did save money. It was less risky, and we got back more scientific information, so that was the right thing to do. But I will have to admit, I do love a good space stunt. Now, I hope I conveyed Vance Brand and Don Lynn's experience in all this. They talked about the high highs and the low lows, and they surely went through them in a short period of time. These guys had already been waiting a long time for a flight. And then the Apollos 18 through 20 were canceled. And even the second Skylab was canceled. And then their rescue mission was canceled. It must have looked pretty gloomy when they were ordered to find a way to cancel their own rescue mission. But to their credit, they were very professional and a great backup crew, and they did find a way, and they did a fantastic job. I found their procedure number two quite interesting for re-entry using the crippled spacecraft. Remember, this, this method was to not even rely on the service module at all and just use the command module thrusters. I never would have thought that the command module had enough fuel or maneuverability to do that with its little thrusters. But Brandon Lynn proved they could, just barely. Those old Apollos were pretty impressive vehicles. I quick, quickly mentioned the, the movie Marooned. If you haven't seen that, and if it doesn't cost too much to see it, if, like it may be free on one of the uh, streaming services, it's worth your time for a watch if you like sci-fi movies, which I'm assuming you do since you're listening to me now. I know it was made in 1969, but it had the big-time stars. Gregory Peck, Richard Crenna, Gene Hackman. I thought it was a pretty decent sci-fi movie. And you can uh, get to watch Gene Hackman go a little crazy.
<laughs> so if you get a chance, check that one out. And finally, in personal news, the crops are growing, the garden is growing, and the cracks in the basement are growing, mainly getting wider. <laughs> we had no work from the builder and uh, no no word from him either. So <laughs> I don't know when they're coming to fix all the other problems. They're not going to fix the cracks he meant. I think I've told you guys this before, but in case you missed it, Mrs. SRH started an online teaching job back in August of last year. You see, with all the money we spent on the property, the house, and the car, we needed to bring in some more funds. See, before we moved, we basically had everything paid for. But now we're in a situation where we're making house payments and car payments and things like that. So, that's the reason mainly she took the job. Now, of course, she had already 30 years teaching experience. She has a national board certification, which is hard to get, and a master's degree in education. So this was really nothing new to her. Except it was online only. And that part made her a little nervous. But now, as the school year winds down, she has told me that she has really enjoyed teaching online. If there was ever a perfect teacher, I think it would be Mrs. SRH. She is fantastic with those kids. I sit over here. We're in the same office. And I listen to some of her teaching and while I'm working. And <laughs> she does just a really great job. I guess with that much experience you do, you, you pick a few things up, don't you? Anyway, the online school has already offered her a new contract for next school year. So she is very happy about that. And perhaps the best part for me is she will be off for the summer in a couple of weeks. Okay, that's all I have for our personal life this time. Over the past fortnight, we have received two donations and pledges. This is the lowest amount we have received this entire year. And May has been somewhat of a lacking month but we are grateful for those who did donate george l from atlanta georgia sent in another donation and moved to the jimney level with a rocket emoji lewis m pledged on patreon at the soyuz level our patreon donors have now reached 243 our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and personal checks for 2023, have reached 305. And we're trying to reach a goal of 450 for this year. So we've got quite a few left here. And we are just, uh, let's see, we're just completing five months. So, 
If you are enjoying this podcast that's been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by check. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Wow, you learn something every time. These missions are anything but routine. Now for the drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jeffrey Hammond. Jeffrey Hammond, if you'll email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed thus far in 2023. We greatly appreciate it. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chalenik, The Internet Archive, Flickr, Chat, GPT, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 416 posted on or about June 15th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.